all my glory me too i mean we are about as hot as we get today. why are we single laura what why, why are, are we single, single? i don't know no idea um yeah i've been to like i mean this is just awful but i'm gonna say it i've been to like two yoga classes and a soul cycle class and jogging since i've washed my hair um, it's just fine. It looks the dirtier it gets, the better it looks. Even though right now, arguably, it does not look great. Um, it's crossed over the line. Well, no, it's just not. I got to do a little styling. Um, I just it's got so up. funny because I, I mean, we are. That's one of the ways that we're very different, and we always notice it when we're together. I'm like a two shower a day kind of girl. That's so annoying. Like how? <laughs> Why? <laughs> what's, what's that? I'm like a one bath. I do take a, a bath. Week. Like I do a cold shower. I have even though I haven't in like since I got back from the East Coast. I do a cold shower usually in the morning, and then I'll like do a bath. Like I'll do a bath like usually a day. I like I'm clean. I just don't wash my hair very much. Um, and yeah, I like baths. No, I have a lot of friends that do that too. And I would I skip every other day of washing my hair because I I understand that it's not good. Um, mine just gets so greasy that it's not. Yeah. Well, mine's it doesn't so look dry because so it, it doesn't. It like you and I have the opposite thing with that. If I yeah. wash my hair too much, it just is. Um, it's bad, 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 bad. So mm-hmm. I am. Um, it like it just looks better the dirtier it gets. Um. I mean, I guess thankf- yeah. thankfully, I don't know. Is that a good thing? Are we <laughs> recording right now? <laughs> are we talking? What are we? Do- are, are we on the air? <laughs> Uh, it's like five okay just to be clear it's 5 a.m here i got up at 3 30 and um yeah our interview because we had an interview that didn't happen and then um and yesterday i got up at two um so i'm about as here as you know as there (laughs) yeah as there not quite not quite there (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I I went up or I got up really early too because my daughter had a bloody nose. And really? So that was yeah, she gets them all the time. Really? Okay. Yeah, um, and she sleeps in the bed with me most nights. Uh, actually, all nights. How so, does she know? Like, does she wake up because she's? It wakes her up. Yeah. Weird. It wakes her up. Is it just the dryness of the of of? Mm-hmm. Oh God! Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's just the dryness and um. So that woke me up and I was like, oh, I could go back to bed or not. But I have this thing I've been, this post I've been writing. So I just woke up and made coffee and started to write. And then before I knew it, it was time to record. What do you write? What's your post on? Because it'll be up by the time, I'm assuming, by the time. Mm -hmm. What's it about? Yeah, I've been writing about, um, I, the post is out actually about part of the book that I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very meta writing about writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's I. So the past two days, I have been writing about this time um, 
in my is in 2012 when I took this same run that I the same loop um, that I've been running the past two days where I took it for the first time and it was the day that my husband and I decided to separate like we had that conversation and just what that run was like um and so I've been doing I did the run for the past two days and I mean I do it a lot but I've been doing it the past few days and it's been different because I'm actually writing about that time you know and um and just sort of like I don't know it's kind of about the ocean it's kind of about that period of time it's kind of about writing it's kind of about the national lyrics it takes an ocean not to break and yeah it's just one of those it's so fascinating like how these things you know how the thread pulls um yeah you mean um like, like how this like the, these conditions kind of come back to recreate themselves and to like pull you back into another time is that what mm-hmm. you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, that what I have found um, is that this stuff, the stuff with my marriage is, is by far the hardest to write about. And I keep trying to not write about it um, because I don't think it's very fair or because I have the deepest, you know, feelings about it or because I, I still I get confused when I write about it. Um, and I mean, it's unfair because it's like about him and I have, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to write a lot about that. Um, it's just fascinating. It's the hard, you know, all the things that I write about, a lot of which are, are very difficult, like writing about my daughter, writing about drinking and writing about all this stuff that that's the hardest thing to write about Yeah, by far, like yeah. by far. So, and, and, it, and it's so fascinating because it's like. The more I write, the more sometimes the more confused I get. You know, it's like you just keep pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. Um, yeah. So it's interesting, and and how much running has like played a part in in my life. Like, it's been sort of where I figure things out. Also, in addition to writing them out, it's really been where I figure things out. And um, so it's all it's about all of that. Yeah. I, it's one of those posts where I'm like, I don't even know what this is about, if anyone will ever want to read it. But I just, you know, I, yeah. it's the first time that words have felt urgent again to like mm-hmm. write my book and to write this this type of stuff. So yeah. it feels good. It feels mm-hmm. really good. I know that it does. feeling. Yeah. So what are you, what's going on with you today, this morning? <laughs> This week, <laughs> I am. Doesn't it feel like you were just here? No, it feels like I was there a long time ago. Um, what's going on with me? I'm going to meet my sister and her family. We're going to go to the rock and roll flea market. Um, what yeah, is that? just a flea market with rock and roll. Um, <laughs> of course, <laughs> just like it sounds. <laughs> you have to understand. I'm looking outside right now, and it's still storming. It's gray and freezing. Oh, well, so that's that an indoor sounds- flea market. Um, even though it is like going to be about 80 degrees today. Um, so yeah, I got that going on. I think I'm going to go to soul cycle class. I'm going to soul cycle again. Um, it's, it's so funny. So like I'm, whenever I'm in that, that place, I'm like, this is the most ridiculous experience 
ever. Like we're in a at room. The like, flea market or at no, the soul the, cycle? there is nothing ridiculous about the rock and roll flea market. I'm talking about soul cycle. <laughs> like, it's just crazy. There's this like, you know, I like know. yesterday I was in there and there's this kid and he's like, I mean, he, the leader, he was just, he didn't stop jumping from the time he walked in. And I was like, how does one, how does one get that much energy? Like, was he born like that? Um, but like, you know, and then we're all like in this box on bikes that don't go anywhere and we're all yeah. rocking together and doing like, and you know what I mean? It's like, um, like sensory overload. The music is so loud. Oh, it's so loud. Well, that's the part I love. That's why that's me like too. part what brings me back is like, I, cause it can go as loud as I like, you know, I have a, th- mm-hmm. a high threshold for that, but I was just sitting there and I was like, this is so fucking ridiculous. I was paid $30 <laughs> to do this. This is just fucking ridiculous. Um, it's <laughs> I embarrassing, so I know, but, you, it is. but it, but it does, but it does the trick. I felt like I was so, I felt like a zombie yesterday and I walked out and I was like, ah, you know, I feel Good. I felt mm-hmm. good. I lo- like. I love what the workout does for my body, and I love what listening to that music does. And you know, but then at the mm-hmm. end, he played you know um, the Circle of Life from The Lion King, and I was God. just like, "What's happening?" That makes me <laughs> so angry. That makes me so yeah, me, angry to hear that. It made me cry. I mean, I was just really tired. Um, <laughs> you cried in Soul Cycle. <laughs> Did you really? I'm tired. I'm telling you, it's been a long, you know, couple of weeks, and it's not a hard thing to make me cry. It's that's not like saying I know. (laughs) I don't think anyone listening is surprised surprised that I cried listening to The Lion King and Soul Cycle. That makes me really angry, though. Like, like Disney music should not be allowed in exercise classes, as far as I'm concerned. Like, someone that um takes my class in my, the one like regular class I have up here um I was when I was in New York last weekend with you yeah um my I missed the class so I had a sub and she texted me and goes that was not you that was not your class she played beauty and the beast and I was so <laughs> mad like oh my god that's never be allowed well I mean here's what I felt like he was like I really love the he was like Kakuna Matata and he's like I really love the Lion King and, you know millennials love Disneyland um and he's a millennial and so I just they do yeah they do mm-hmm what is that I don't know I found that out when I moved down here and started going to Disneyland I was like why are all these so young people here and my sister is like oh millennials love disneyland and then i asked megan who's a millennial and she was like yep it's truth we do wow <laughs> that's so weird okay they go okay. it's so weird they go like that's what they do for a day like th- not all but there's a, a significant population that's just as like yeah we were like hanging out at disneyland and then you know and it's a thing um okay i know Anyway, um, yeah, so, um, <laughs> so we have an interview to, uh, yes! introduce. and I was so excited. Um, this is Anne, who was our first interview. Um, she didn't air first, but she was our first interview that we ever did. And we did Sarah Heeple after her. We did them within a week of each other. And that was surreal. Um, <laughs> that was surreal. I was you like, and I were like happening. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> How? <laughs> Where <this>? are we? <laughs> Hi. Um, uh, hi. Yeah. And um, and so Anne and um, I think you and Anne have, have continued a relationship and, and Anne and I have continued a relationship. She and I had lunch when she came to L.A. and we Skype about every few weeks um, mm-hmm. and text, which is cute. Um, is. Yeah, we don't text. We're not on the texting um front but we texting have skyped a few times as well the texting tip thank yeah. you i can't think of the word mm-hmm. but we skyped a few times and every time it's like two hours goes by i'm like yeah. oh my god i have to get back to my life she's yeah. so great she's wonderful she's really wonderful so so anyway um so yeah, we, she's in the middle of you know writing her uh second book she's in a po- uh, i think she's in a two two book deal and um, we actually ended up just talking a lot more about dating and, um, our personal lives and, and, you know, as well as, as, you know, what she's writing and, um, yeah, so it's just sobriety more of a like a bit. sobriety, but it's, it was, you know, for, for me, it's more like, um, I don't know, chatting with one of our friends now, which is just so, I mean, phenomenal. I don't know. I don't know how to like kind of wrap that up. And, um, <laughs> no, it is, it's weird. I mean, and then the next interview that we're, we're going to air is a second round for another person. It's just, it's cool. It's, we're very lucky. We're very lucky. And, and not only that, it's just, uh, I think it, it has, it, it also says a lot about, um, you know, the friendships that we make, um, in this community. I, mm-hmm. Before I forget, I totally forgot to tell you, um, I went to brunch with two of my friends who live down here, both live down here. One of them just moved here from San Francisco. Um, and they're both sober. And I had my, like, it was crazy because we were both like, wait, we're going to meet more than one of us. Um, at a restaurant and have a long brunch and we're, we're all sober. Um, yeah, no, it was, you know, and, and they're, oh my God, they're so awesome. So it's just this like, um, I don't know. It's just, it's, we're so lucky and we are so lucky. I think, um, you know, when it comes to the relationships that, that we make and continue to make on this path, I just don't even know how to like, I know. No, this is good. I thought about it. Um, it's one of the things I thought about when I was running yesterday. So I, um, it, I ran in the evening and, um, at like six and it's, it was a Saturday night, you know, yesterday was Saturday and I, um, had talked to a few like friends earlier in the day about, what they were doing that night. I, 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 what had been running through my head was like, I, there are a lot of Friday and Saturday nights that I kind of hang out by myself. And like, I could, it, last night it, it, I had one of those waves of feeling a little sad about that. Like, like there are a few plans going on with groups of people that I know I, that I feel I'm not invited to because they're drinking things. And, um, and those people had asked, you know, do you want to do coffee or do you want to go on a walk? And which is great, but once in a while it will make me sad, you know, like I, it'll just bum me out a little bit. But I, as I was running, I was thinking, you know, that's true. Like, it's true that I don't, there are certain things that I don't get invited to, um, because of, because of the drinking and that's just a fact but what I was what what hit me was like yeah that time though like that time that I 
and you know, where I'm not doing those things and where I'm not tired the next morning, you know, because I would have gone to those things is when I write and when I, I have met myself. I know. And when I have met God <laughs> truthfully. Like so it's it's this trade-off and it feels it's real, you know, it's real. And sometimes it can make me feel really sad, but it's also, I wouldn't, I would, I, you know, that the past two nights and the past two mornings, that's what I've been doing is writing in the time when I used to spend with people um, right. out or, yeah. And well, that's real. It's, it is real. It is, it, you know, when I woke up yesterday, I woke up yesterday at two in the morning to finish off this thing for, uh, it's like a, a, pro- a program I'm doing within my program. And um, mm-hmm. I woke up at 2 a.m. to like finish it off. And this, the weirdest part of it was that as I woke up, um, people were stumbling out of the bars. You know, it's the loudest time because mm-hmm. I live in a bar district. And so it's like the loudest part of the night here. Um, and it's just there's something that is, I don't know, it's that, that will never get old about that, right? Like that will never get old about the fact that I'm not out at two in the morning, you know, like closing it down. Um, no. That I'm getting, that I have enough, you know, within me to get up at that time and um, and work on something that's a passion, right? It's more like stealing so yeah, it's, I get it. I get totally. it. Totally, And it's like, even if I was to go, like, sometimes I just wish I was still invited, you know, even if yeah. it's like to dinner or whatever. But yeah. the thing is, I could go, I could be invited, or, or I could go and I could have dinner and I would come home and I would sleep. And then I'd maybe get up a little later the next day. The point is, I wouldn't write. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting. Well, I think all this stuff, like I really do think all this stuff conspires to kind of like push you to where you're supposed to be going. Um, yeah. And so like clearly what's happening. Like right. Too. Right. Like it mm-hmm. is. It's just like, no, like right here, like right here is where you're supposed to be. This is where your energy and your focus should be. Um, you know, don't mess with what you're given. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. But yeah, so we had a really beautiful talk with our dear friend Anne Dowsett Johnston. If you aren't familiar with her work, um, she is the author of Drink, which is on my 13 um, essential books for holistic recovery list because mm-hmm. it's one of the most essential books, especially as a woman that you can read. Um, it's part memoir, part um, uh, statistics and, and, and part investigation around the story of what, what, uh, what is happening with women and alcohol. And you can listen to our interview that we'll post a link to that, uh, on our webpage, but, um, our first interview, our first interview with her. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's lovely. It's lovely to have this woman in our lives and, and continue this conversation. Good morning, hello ladies. <laughs> okay, good morning, good morning. Good morning. And where are you right now? I am at my home in Toronto, Canada. Lovely. With dogs. <laughs> you have dogs? I have two dogs, Wolfie and Jasper. Wolfie after Virginia uh-huh. and and Jasper after the beautiful place in the Rocky Mountains where I met my husband. Oh, your ex-husband that you're, is now, your now my, your best friend. Now my best friend. Now my very ex-husband. 
Uh, in fact, we've been separated for 27 years, a long, long time, but he is the father of my beautiful son, Nicholas, who's living in the United States, is 32 years old, and um, we have a wonderful family. Yeah, I do. I want to talk about that sometime, too, like the the uh, evolution of your relationship with your with your ex-husband. But we yeah. can we can get to that if we can get to it. So, hi. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And your son lives in L.A., which is how I get to see you. Yeah, my son lives in L.A. He's studying to be a psychotherapist and he's based at Smith, the famous women's college and one of the seven sisters. And luckily he lives in California. So I get to see Holly. That's awesome. Wait, so he's based at Smith. Does do men get to go to Smith? They get to go to the graduate programs of, of Smith and he is doing his practicum in LA, which is just fantastic. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it cool. is. It is fantastic here. So I think it's so cute. I mean, we met, we did our first episode a year and almost about a year and a half ago. I think it was like October, November of 2015. And then, um, and then we've, the three of us separately have developed relationships. You and Anne, mm-hmm. Laura, and then Anne and myself. Um, yep. And it's really special because this is, I mean, we met through the podcast. Um, yeah. Well, she was our first interview. Our first and interview. We, were, <laughs> we were like, I remember getting that email because I reached out to you, Anne. Um, and you you said yes right away. I was like, what? I know. <laughs> She's going to come on? <laughs> we, were so, we were so starstruck because you your book was so important to us and we hadn't interviewed anyone yet. Yeah. And, I thought it, you know, I was like, what? You couldn't talk to us? Oh, my God. And then it was. Yeah, it's crazy. That was a great interview. I re-listened to it this morning. It was a fabulous interview. And what was so fascinating about that interview is that you really defined yourself as such separate entities with Laura really being interested in one part of the book, which was the memoir and my story. And Holly, you being much more interested in (laughs) the pinking of the market in the alcohol industry and some of the factual reporting, because that book is a crazy quilt of, mm-hmm. of other women's stories of mm-hmm. what's happening in closing the gender gap on risky drinking. And then my story as well. Yeah. And um, so it was a treat to get to know you that way. And it's been mm-hmm. an exceptional treat to become friends with both of you. Yeah. I, yeah, I remember that we split it up. Laura did. Laura, I was like, you go first heart and I'll go second head. Um. <laughs> it's funny because I don't even remember drink being a book about that was like re- any kind of research based book. I literally just remember this, the memoir parts. Interesting. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that was a book. That was like a yeah, it's funny. It's it's true, though. It's, it's a very rare book because of, of that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there are books that try to do that, but don't do it very well. And it was just so beautifully woven. The story, like the statistics were pulled out of the story. Um, like the story led into the statistics. The statistics led into the story. So it was really um, in your story. So it was really, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing book. Um, so, yeah, so it's cute because we've like, we've, you know, we've become friends. And it's, um, you know, one of those pinch me things, um, but also just so very special. And now you're back again. You're yes. back. 
<laughs> yeah. So, so what have you been doing since we talked? Well, since we talked, I've been working very, very hard on my second book, which has been far more problematic than my first book. And that is a confounding reality for um, that I, I hear not, um, I'm not alone in this, that mm -hmm. the terrible twos do strike writers, and I've got a bad case of it. I have taken a very um, direct tack at my second book on writing more memoir, and it may not work. It may work. Um, I'm really interested in the qualities that not only I've had to, I guess, evolve in my recovery, but also at what life has thrown me. And we know I'm now in my uh, ninth year of recovery, and it's interesting because, you know, in drink, I talk about what was the beginning, as it turned out, of grief. Um, yeah. I mm. lost my partner of 14 years in um, May of 2010, and my father died of extreme alcoholism uh, six months later. And during mm. that same year, my son moved to the United States. So the three main guys in my life disappeared. And, then, and oh, your mother passed too, very not too long after. Is that right? That's right. And then it just started a litany of loss. Um, I had a really interesting time, frankly, um, being single with my mother being single, newly widowed. And we had, she being the my so-called alcoholic parent for more than three decades, we had a real... Um, precious, precious time in repairing our relationship. And she was brave enough to agree in her 80s to have her story of her own alcoholism and drink. So we had a really remarkable time. I took her to California a few times and it was amazing. And then I uh, was with her when she died. And basically I ushered out a whole generation of my family, which is really a different um, experience when you're in your 60s to be at the front end of the conveyor belt of life. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, God. you're it. You are the elder, and yeah. you, are the person. So, my the book that I've been working on is is working title: Grief, Grace, and Gratitude. The three things that I I believe we live in a grief phobic culture, and that that if we um, ignore grief, it we prolong it and we need to make space for it. And if we do make space for it, a certain grace can come into play. And that's a hard thing to write about. And it's a yeah. hard thing to explore. And exploring the, how grief transmutes, because I think there is a transmutation into gratitude over time, is a really interesting alchemy. Um, and so that's what I've been exploring in writing. But I have been... Um, really experiencing my limitations. And I didn't find that um, with drink. Drink came out of me like a locomotive. It had the steam a steam heat of a locomotive. And it yeah, just... Yeah, didn't you say you, you wrote it in like six months or something? Yeah, actually 11, but it was um, under a year. And it was fully formed, if I look at the book proposal, uh, it was fully formed um, long before it was sold. And, and so... Mm. This book has been a challenge, and it's really been quite an existential um, 
experience for me because, you know, it's not like I'm a newcomer. I started in journalism when I was 23 years old and I've spent my whole life more or less with the written word, but Mm -hmm. it's a different thing. I think pursuing, I know I have, I hope two or three more books left in me. This book has been challenging. I can't wait to, um, to see what comes out on the other side of this book and like what you have, uh, like selfishly, what you have to teach coming out of it, because <clears throat> I feel like, I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start writing a book about what you're writing about. Like, where do you even Mm-mm. start with that? You know, Mm-mm. I wouldn't um, touch it, <laughs> but let's, <laughs> yeah. but let's talk about it. So you actually, so you are, I mean, cause this has been an evolution as well, like what you were writing about. So you started with, was it, this is what you, the working concept that you started with, but you've also gone through evolutions where you were looking to write about other things. And now you've come back to this. What's like, how can you talk about that process and like how that's changed and how you landed back on this very difficult, um, subject? Yeah. You know, much as alcoholism, um, or addiction imposes itself on you, or that's the way it feels when you're on your knees, as I was at the end, um, and not wanting to live. This book imposed itself on me. It just essentially squatted on my shoulders um, because <laughs> I, had sold, I had sold a book on gratitude. And by that, I don't mean a happy Facebook. I mean a book focused on how we find ourselves grateful for the tough stuff in life, which I think is the biggest challenge of maybe any life, but certainly of life and recovery to um, really, for starters, forgive yourself for all the antics that you may have pulled off. (laughs) And I certainly pulled off quite a few. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's an experiment in a, a more visceral and muscular gratitude than than the happy face version that I think our culture has absorbed. Um, that book f- proved to be too simple for me. And I have been struggling with something that feels a little more like a piece of sculpture where you're taking a piece of stone and you're trying to excavate what is at the heart and soul of what you're trying to say. And in the end, I found a voice that I think works. I'm, I'm confident works. I know um, from those of our who read it that, I know the writing works, whether it functions as a book and whether I'm able to pull it off, it may be the book that defeats me. Um, so <laughs> I don't think so. I know <laughs> what happened was grief imposed itself on me. And I began to see that grief is actually the, one of the larger challenges that all of us will ever have to face. I mean, most of us make it to midlife. We've all had the friend who's lost a sibling to cancer or had early losses. But when you reach my age, you find that many of us are actually having to go through an initiation that we didn't have to go through at an earlier age. So everything from the loss of your youth, uh, menopause, um, losing your parents, losing perhaps a career that you loved, losing a marriage, Um, All these losses, um, when they, in my case, um, pile up and are are concurrent, really give you a a lovely tutelage in um, the experience. And it can take you to your knees. And in my case, it did take me to my knees. Took me. So what was, yeah. So, so talk about that a little bit. Like, 
zero in on sort of when that happened for you and what it looked like? The first couple of losses took me to my knees in the sense that I gave up um, very curiously for the very first time in my life, the ability and and desire to read. And Mm -hmm. I became extremely anxious. I started having panic attacks. That was in the loss of my, the man I was to marry and my father. There was a lot of uh, illness around my father's death and a lot of pain around understanding I wasn't going to marry the man I was in love with. And so I had panic attacks. I didn't eat. I lost a lot of weight. It was a diet that a lot of people asked me about. And I said, it's grief. You don't want it. Um, (laughs) it It was extremely distressing. And it reached a crescendo where I went to my best friend and said, I need to move in with you for a week just to get my sea legs again. And then I happened to be flying to Stockholm for some work. And I witnessed the second phase of it, which is that I had to fall in love with the world again. I had to fall in love because I was actually angry at God. I was angry at the world that would disappoint me as much as I had been disappointed and crushed. And I had to fall in love with the world. And that set um, a second stage of what I now see was grief, which is wanderlust, which is it was easier to run away from my life than it was to actually engage in everyday life I needed to fall in love with the richness of this world and I guess Mm -hmm. Holly you might understand this with your love of Rome yeah Um, I do and I needed to run away and I ran away did you know that Anne though were you like this is what I need to do I mean did you have what did it what what did you know no you don't I didn't I didn't know um and I make no secret that I suffer from depression and when I was 17 years old and really um, a very big newcomer to this, I remember writing a list of the things I loved about the world. And I had kind of a girl crush on Joni Mitchell and I had a, <laughs> a real girl crush on Leonard Cohen. And I know those two were on the list and um, I wish I'd kept that list. And I actually had to almost redo that as an adult. I had to, fall in love and, and grow my faith back in the world. And to do that, as you know, in, in recovery and sobriety, you can't turn to numbing. You mm-hmm. can't turn to the thing that you used to use to kill the pain. A little Novocaine wasn't possible for me. So what it turned into was I took a residency for memoir at Banff in Canada. Mm-hmm. I went to the Mexican jungle on, on a bit of a spiritual journey. I traveled a lot for work. I went and advised the Irish government on what to do about women and alcohol. I just basically didn't stay home for about a year and a half. And it was very enriching. And also at, at one level, it ended. At, at a certain level, it ended. And I, I was able to look back and realize I ran away. I ran away with the fairies because... I needed to fall in love with what it meant to be human again and human human as a single woman, which is something that I actually almost had never been um, from the time I was in my late teens. I had really never been single. Well, and it's also this concept that talk, I don't know if you've read Charlotte Tomano's book, Awakening the Brain, um, but it's, she talks about how she went, um, like she had to go, I think it was China or maybe it was India. I think it was China. Um, and she just called, like she went through something, um, a period of grief and she went and, 
Um, she called it just going to a new place so she could see the world through new eyes. It's also like just like being able to kind of change the perception of what you know. Um, she called it pilgrimize. Um, but it's just yeah. like I I get it and I get it like on such a visceral level. Um, um, because I I mean that was what that was what I did and it was um instinctual, right? So instinctual. Yeah. Instinctual. I think, you know, one therapist said to me, it's like putting your hand on a burner on a stove. You you instinctively want to pull it away. And I think travel is a way of looking through new eyes is a good way of looking at it. And um, for me, pulling my hand off the stove, just yeah. pulling my hand saying, I need to look at life differently. I'm not quite sure why or how. I'm not quite sure what's going to deal with this grief, but I need to, I think the other really interesting thing is for a lot of the home, I'll call, I'll call them the homies, and I'm sure you call them that, <laughs> is that, you know, what I noticed from the Facebook page is that people, you know, in sobriety and recovery experience all the pain that the rest of the world does, and um we have many losses. I'll give the example again of losing Jake, my partner, where there isn't a funeral, there isn't a public acknowledgement, and there's a lot of "Aren't you over that yet?" Right. What doesn't What doesn't What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. All those platitudes that you, man, you get so tired of. Yeah, you get mm-hmm. tired of them, and so it isn't. It's very private. It's something that you have to. You can't have a conversation with uh, with even your best friend after a while because they would like you to get over it. And so you have to navigate your world and find a way of the word that resonates for me is metabolize. You have to metabolize the grief. Well, can I say something? So this is, I mean, it's just a really interesting, interestingly timed conversation because I, um, just this week I was in New York and I had, I mean, my loss is not near what your loss was, but I had this experience in New York where I wrote about, you know, one of my bigger losses. And then I went through this, um, I just like, I've been crying all week long and just like, I feel, you know, completely hungover and beat up. And I went to my therapist on Wednesday, you and I talked right after it actually, was it Wednesday? It doesn't matter. And she had said, for the first time, um, I was like, what is this? And why am I not just over this? And also, like, I can intellectualize the gratitude piece of why that I had to lose this. And I can see how this benefited me and how I can see all of that. But I am still, and it's been three years, you know, like, I'm still heartbroken and haunted and, um, and I was just like vomiting tears, right? And it's an interesting thing because she said, well, you're, you haven't grieved it. And, you know, and she very uh, intelligently explained that I had been, I mean, I had, I, as soon as like, and I'm sure you can, um, I'm sure you have a similar experience. We don't, you know, I didn't stop. I Like the loss, like I had two losses at once and I just kind of didn't stop. I just ran forward into the next thing. And, um, and there is, she brought up a concept of, you know, we won't, 
like sometimes we can't process this until we can process it. Like sometimes our body isn't ready to actually like um, purge it or um, or metabolize it. Um, like sometimes we're not in the place to and I don't and I, you know, just kind of it's just been on my mind this week. Like I've had the gratitude for it, but it's been a bypass, right? Like I've gone to the like, I'm so thankful for this without actually like um, feeling that in my body. And then, and, and then it also just what seems like way too long of a time later, but you know, also, you know, relatively short, it's like actually like processing out of my body, like almost like I'm detoxing it or sweating it out. Um, and, um, and I, you know, and it's kind of like the only time in the last three years where I've actually been in a safe place to do that. So it's just, I mean, it's the the whole thing. I, I don't know. It's just been on. It's been on mind this week, and it, it is. It's one of those things where in society we just don't let people grieve, and also we do, we do kind of say that like you're still stuck on that, or you know, we just want people to get over it. And I don't know. It's just I don't know. Where we're going with that. I just feel it this week. It's an interesting topic. Well, we really, we really worship happiness in our culture in North America mm-hmm. and value it um, heavily, which, you know, is almost, um, I think, a burden to individuals who feel some kind of um, lack of responsibility if they don't feel happy. And that, mm-hmm. when you look at the whole recovery piece and you look at alcohol, is a major part of the equation. If you think of you know, the ads for alcohol, you're in a beautiful cottage, you're in the country, you're with a perfect looking partner, you're in love, everything works out. The messaging is this is a key part of a happy life. And this is a key part of a happy relationship. And so I think the subject that we're on, which is how do you live in recovery? How do you live through grief? How do you live through a normal life, whether a normal life without this extra agent? Um, and how how do you navigate all that? These are these are the serious, important human questions, I believe, and that's what I've been trying to wrestle with with my new book. It's awesome. I <clears throat> I was just thinking as Holly was talking, and uh, and you were just talking that um, I was part of a training uh, earlier this year, no, last year, and this is like day four of the training, and. Um, someone raises their hand and she, and you know, it's like intense work and I'm talking about finally feeling all these things that you've been avoiding feeling all your life and how to process trauma and all this stuff. And this woman raises her hand and like completely earnestly says, what I really want to know is I'm, am I going to be happier? (laughs) (laughs) Am I going to be happier? And it was such a, um, such an interesting question because it's like, we do worship this idea of being happy um, or like right. ha- this, this idea that we're going to just, the goal is to like transcend these states, these other less desirable states, like being in grief or being sad, being everything else, but happy. And um, I just find that I find it uh, exhausting, you know, and so misrepresentative of what life is actually like, um, it's, it's, it, like you said just now, you said it, um, can feel, I think you said oppressive or yes uh, something to, 
people who don't feel happy all the time. I mean, I don't know. I think it's, we're just so confused about how we're actually supposed to be um, and feel. I agree. I think, I think it's about the commodification of the human existence and, you know, Holly and I were having a conversation earlier this year and I, I was talking about the brokenheartedness of people. Mm. Um, I believe, I believe the happy, the happy imperative has really commodified life almost into a lottery ticket. And we are all supposed to be happy. We're all supposed to feel this way. I have found in recovery, well, certainly a number of things, um, I feel deep peace and I feel joy and I feel that I have a real um, perspective on many, many chapters of my life, but those chapters are like a kaleidoscope and I don't ask myself too often um, to use a line from an old movie, Splendor in the Grass, whether I'm happy. I ask myself whether I'm peaceful and And if I'm questing and if I'm thriving, I, I think that's a much more interesting question. Oh, much more interesting. And, and those are the questions that I hope I keep asking myself. Um, but I think that is the interesting evolution of long-term recovery is that we begin to use a different lens. And I think it's an interesting thing that it demands of you because it is saying you're not allowed to reach for certain things. And, you know, in my case, once I put down alcohol for a while, there was food for a while, there was shopping. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, and, and then it began, it, be, it became exactly what we were just talking about, which was flight, taking flight. Mm-hmm. So yeah. my thing now is how do you stay grounded? How do you stay grounded and thrive where mm-hmm. you are? Right. And, you know, Kundalini Yoga, I'm much newer to it than you two are. Um, and that is a way for me to stay grounded. And, and there are many other tools. But this is, and, you know, thankfully I can read again. And um, there are many other things, including therapy. But I think that um, these are the questions we need to be asking ourselves. Well, I think it's interesting. My teacher, one of my teachers, James Braz, says truly happy people aren't happy all the time. And that is, it's one of those things that it seems, I mean, it's so obviously true, but also it's so hard to catch. And it's one of those things where you don't, like you really do, you really do have this idea that something's wrong with you. Something is inherently wrong with you if you're not able to access happiness at all times. And for me, it's like the paradox of it is that I found like I am the happiest understanding that I am not always going to be happy and like allowing Mm -hmm. myself to be miserable and allowing myself to be all the things that we're supposed to be or that we're, that we, you know, that we're designed to feel. And so it's a total, total relief. Oh my God. And it's just also this other part of it too. Like you drink and you numb all of these feelings, right? You might have moments of feeling, you know, bliss or joy, like, you know, when you're just barely lit, buzzed, whatever. But for the most part, you're like numbing all of those, your entire range of feelings. And an inevitable part of like turning, like taking the alcohol off of it, out of it, is that you're turning up, right? Your, your ability to 
to receive pleasure and your ability to experience awe and your ability to feel happy and all these like great things. But you're also turning up the experience of your ability to feel fucking miserable and angry Mm -hmm. and all of these things. Mm -hmm. And so it's just an inevitable part of it that if you remove the thing, you're going to feel like you don't get just one without the other. Um, but it's, but it is, we say, we say it's like, we, like we have an entire industry that's built around making sure people aren't depressed and that they don't feel the thing. Um, entire society, I mean, right. And a fear of, of, um, it's all, you know, it's, it's fear. I, I just thought of Holly, like our, uh, conversation in New York when we were coming back from La La Land from watching the movie and uh, I don't, we were just having like a windy conversation, but I remember talking about, like I said, um, we were talking about like luxury things, like if we appreciate luxury things or not, like yeah. fancy things. And um, <laughs> I was like, I don't know, man, I'm still so like stunned and grateful when the lights go on, like yeah. when my electricity works because I've paid the bills. Yeah. And, um, and that's not happiness. Like that's got nothing to do. That's just that's um and and that type of stuff was available to me uh when I was drinking you know it's like um I guess what you said Anne about not not valuing it so much I just I don't value it as much and the answer to the in that training the answer that the the teacher gave was you might like you might feel more happy but you're happy is like one thing of a hundred things that you might feel you know it's Freedom is what you're going for. You said peace, and I say I I value that too. And I I say freedom, like freedom, freedom. is what I value. Um, well, peace freedom, is freedom. I mean, it's pretty peace and freedom. Yeah, um, they are. They're very closely related. But for me, um, freedom, like that, I don't have to be afraid of of feeling happy or not happy, you know, or I don't have to be afraid of anything else that could come because I'm free. I'm not controlled by this. Um, by by alcohol, certainly, but by really anything, you know, it's, it's, um, I don't know, it's a fascinating topic. Well, I don't know about you, but one of the things that I really got back when I became sober, and I'm sure both of you did as well, is I became the most Anne I've ever been. I became, certainly when I was writing um, my book, Drink, um, so grounded in who I was and so, and I was thriving at such a high throttle that um, I really feel that that is a gift. Um, We know, for instance, just to digress, we know, for instance, that women, young women, much more than young men drink to cure, curb social anxiety, to fit in, to be the life of the party and not be so nervous. And I think what you get is this um, ability to be in your own skin, not crawling out of your skin as you are with a hangover. So you're in your own skin. And in my case, begin to appreciate, not that I wouldn't love to be in love again, but appreciate the richness of other loves, the richness of Um, other connections that make my world and it's so evident between the two of you for instance um, the kind of connection that you have to be able to enjoy the richness of that experience and to have those who love me be able to trust me again be able to count Mm -hmm. on me and enjoy me in you know I was speaking to my sister before this podcast and I said with alarm they might be asking me about dating 
And she said, oh, no. (laughs) She said, but you could talk about so many other relationships. And it's true. I, you know, more or less had um, many important relationships. My best friend, my son, my partner at the time, my sister, um, which were really incredibly threatened by my drinking. And I know that's true in both your cases. And so what we get back as the years um, progress and we are more and more ourselves and more and more trustworthy and more and more reliable and we build all that back up again, um, we really are able to see life so differently. And that is a hard thing to capture, but a very um, rich thing to experience. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes to all of that. Yeah. Do you want to talk about dating? <laughs> well, we started. We said at the start of this. We said at the start of this, like we're going to talk about dating, and the the thing the three of us have in common is well, we don't date, so we have much to talk about. Um, well, <laughs> the thing that I find that is really interesting is that I I am trying to see the love that is being given me as as a gift and by that i mean the um incredible friendship i have with my ex-husband um but in terms of actually going out into the dating world the dating world has changed so much since i ever dated and you know i'm actually not sure i ever did date it just sort of happened every time Mm -hmm. that i was with somebody so i feel like um a martian a total Martian. I would not know how to even begin to approach this in my 60s. Tinder. I, yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. God. <laughs> no, I wouldn't either. I would, I mean, have you, like, have you thought, though? Like, what are the, what are the channels? Well, last year I went on um, a number of online dating sites and um, it was totally scary. And I don't mean scary as in I was frightened of the experience. I was frightened of the men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I right? I, yeah, right. I, I didn't. I didn't. Um, I also think that one gets into a very interesting conundrum, which is men who are my age are interested in women who are in their 40s. And yeah. if you do the math, does that mean that men in their 80s are interested in me? And it's just not where I want to go. Yeah, It's so true though. Okay. Because my dad is a little bit older than you, but he, he's not interested in women his age. Right. We talk about, I mean, we talk about this. It's like, I don't, I truly don't know. But not all men. I mean, my mom and Bill, my mom is like, she's that he's like, maybe I think she's older than him. I don't know. But they met and my mom was my mom is 72. They've been together since she was like 65. And I mean, he worships her. And um, I mean, we worship you. (laughs) They listen, I think. I don't know. Um, No, it's not. It's not. But it's just like it's kind of the thing. I mean, I can look on and I've deleted all this shit now, but I can look on like Tinder or the league and just be like, oh, like if I look on the like one side, I'm like, oh, my God, everybody is a fucking frat boy who likes, you know, golfing and hiking and wine clubs and or I can look on another and be like oh my god every man out there is um taking shirtless selfies um Mm -hmm. 
you know, but it's, but the truth yeah. is it's, that's just a, you know, a pool. Lens. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you there, there is a, my favorite chapter in my, the book that I'm working on is called catch and release. And it's about letting go of a big fish. In my case, the relationship that I was in for a long time. Yeah. Um, but it's also about a trip to the Bahamas to a really incredible little castaway island where I went with one of my closest friends who's also in the same position and her attitude is um ditch the princess role who wants to be the princess we are we will be the prince says any man who we meet now is going to need rescuing and who wants to rescue and who wants to be the princess because the princess is, was always asleep so ditch the fairy tale um I have another friend who's South African who lives in London and who says um, don't you realize you won the lottery? You, you don't have to be a nurse with a purse. So, um, <laughs> I really don't, I really don't know what the answer is. I guess I'm old fashioned. I believe in fate. I'm very, yeah. I'm very, yeah, fat. I do too. I do too. Are you, are you, so this is what, what I want to talk about because I, I was having this conversation last night with a friend. Like, first of all, are you, are you longing for it? Do you actively kind of long for that relationship right sure. now? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. I do. I don't think that there's any, look at much as I love Jasper and Wolfie, they're no, they're, they're, they can't replicate and nor can my friendship with my ex-husband replicate what it feels like to lie in bed with the Sunday New York Times mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. decide to go out for breakfast together and have that ability to have an extended conversation that goes on for years, which is what I had for a long, long time. A yeah, and, and I think that that especially because you have had that for the ma- majority of your life, right? Yeah, I had I had a fourteen year marriage and I had a fourteen year relationship, and so together that's twenty eight years of understanding and appreciating the difficulties as well, but but definitely the benefits of having that kind of intimacy. And that's what I miss. I miss intimacy at every level. And, Mm. and so I guess I'm old fashioned in that way as well. I feel it, it really is a challenge and I'm trying to cope with it, but I think it's hard. I think it's, it's not a coincidence that it's the second chapter in the book I'm writing and a a pretty key one in terms of grief, in terms of, you know, I, um, for me, it's like a black box um, went down with an airplane and it's buried at the bottom of the ocean. And I'm not sure what's in the black box, but I'm not sure. So I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. Why and and will it ever come again? And And to me, that's the biggest mystery. And I know a lot of women in recovery who are wrestling with the same question. Yes. I, I don't think it's old fashioned. I think it's just honest. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't asking to hoping you would answer one way or the other. I'm just curious because I think it's hard to answer that question. Honestly, half the time I don't believe myself when I answer one way or the other that yes, I do want a relationship or no, that no, I don't. It's always somewhere in between. And it's not even, I don't know that I'm even really aware of the, the real answer, you know? Um, but what I was talking to my friend about was that I think people, I think we're made to, you know, biologically and probably psychologically, we're made to couple. Um, but 
I also think it depends on how you've spent a lot of your life being in relationship, in romantic relationship or not. Um, what, where you end up being comfortable, you know, like I, Holly and I have talked about this event too. Um, I have, I've been alone so much more than I have been in a relationship for the majority of my life. I mean, really until I met my husband, I hadn't had serious relationships and that, that lasted for, um, you know, eight years. And now I, I've really been single since, since then. And I'm very comfortable in it. It's not that I want it all the time. Um, but I'm curious about that. Like, do you think that's true? Does it even matter? Holly, what do you think? Uh, or like, no, I don't think it matters. I mean, I think that we like, I think, I mean, for me, you know, I was in, I was in relationship. I wasn't in relationships until I was 18. And then I wasn't out of relationships until I was, 32. And, um, and then I've, you know, for the last six, seven years, I've been like, it's been barren, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I have a collection of ex-boyfriends that are good friends. And that's about like the closest that I have to, and, and also really strong male friendships. And that's about as close as I've gotten to, uh, that I have to any semblance of, um, of like male, female. Um, I haven't had you know, deep intimacy or like I haven't had a, a relationship that I would call a relationship in, in seven years. And mm-hmm. um, I and through all of it, you know, my first I was boy crazy until I was 18. I always had like I had the same repeating patterns with boys until I was 18. Um, and then when I and then from there, I didn't have the same repeating patterns. I had a, ver- a variety of relationships with men and some I chased and some chased me and some I ended and some, you know, like and very, very different things. And then for the last, you know, seven years, um, it has been the same thing. They've been the same yeah exact man and so I think we evolve and you know like what you just said I don't know the answer and I don't and the old fashioned is and all this I mean I'll be clear I want the love of my life and I know I'm going to have that relationship like I crave that and I crave it like none other and it's a beautiful Mm -hmm. thing to crave and I also know when I get it um, I'm not going to remember what it was like to crave it and I'm not going to remember how lonely it was or how much it sucked or how what a loser it felt to go to, you know, seven years of weddings by myself. Um, right. But I also know um, I have work to do and that like I'm single right now for a reason. And I mean, it's not a, a universal fuck you. And that I yeah. and part of it is because I think I have work to do on not on just in myself, but in the world. And part of it is because I think I really need this time. Like I need need my time by myself. Like I am going to go to Ikea after we get on this, off this call. And then it's Friday night and I am going to roast vegetables and I'm going to eat them in bed. And I'm going to watch the Real Housewives (laughs) Beverly Hills. You know that? And I haven't washed my sheets in two weeks and I haven't shaved my legs in three. And so that's awesome. Like I am Liz Lemon and I'm happy about it. Um, But I think that like it's just I mean, I think that my love, I think it's just as beautiful to be where I'm at and and just as deep to feel the loneliness sometimes and just as deep to feel the want as it will be to feel the mutual love for this, you know, this the for for Bill Maher when he 
finally finally realizes me when we're together. Well, well said. I don't, I don't feel the same way, but well said. I'm very, very holly, very beautiful. Um, I feel that um, I feel the clock ticking, and I feel mm-hmm. the um, that this is the best part of being human, and I feel increasingly that there are experiences I don't want to miss. Yeah, and I get that. There's the experience of bringing my sober self to a relationship that mm. I just haven't had. Right. Oh my gosh, I feel that so much. I feel that so much too. I yeah. do. I'm just curious. I think I know. Yeah. What, right? what, a trip, what a trip to do all of those things sober. I know. Um, because let's face it, alcohol was a big part, especially near the end. In you know sexual encounters, in 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 the dating I did, in all sorts of relationships, you know. So I think I think that part really intrigues me. It's an adventure that I want. It's me like, too. Yeah. Well, I think. I mean, Anne. First of all, like you are. I mean, I think honestly, I think that. Um, Maybe like we have a podcast and there's like 14,000 really intelligent women and men watching this. Maybe we can put a call out to find like a good man. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, I'm not kidding you guys. Anne is the biggest catch ever. Um, But I do think, I think, I mean, I do think that this, I don't see you like, it's just like, you know, we have these conversations about your book and I'm like, oh my God, you're going to like, it's going to blow people's fucking pants off. You know, nobody works this hard for something, you know, for, for, for not. And your book is, you know, like, and it's the same, I think with this, um, you know, I, your love, like you, this is your love story. And I do believe you're, you're going to find that. Um, and it's, oh, yeah. it is, are- but you're a naughty girl. You are a naughty girl. You- <laughs> Persuade me to talk about the most private thing. You're you are a naughty girl. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, I just, I mean, you are so, oh, I don't know. So, I, I mean, I, I, I see for you maybe what you can't see for you. Um, well, I think we all do that, right? I mean, it's yeah. like you and I say that all the time. Like, oh, I see I know. all the things for you, uh, this, you know, related to this and everything else. And, it's um, it's impossible to see for ourselves when we haven't experienced it. We don't even know, you know. I don't know what it's like to be in a sober, a sober relationship, and Anne doesn't yeah. either. And um, that curiosity though is real. It's yeah. like I'm so curious who I will be. Yeah. In <laughs> in a relationship. Yeah. Uh, sober. Yeah. Well, you've been in a relation. I mean, you and, you know, you've been, you've had a boyfriend for the last two years almost. Like he, you broke up, you know, six yeah. months no, ago. I have. That's true. It's not really fair to say I haven't been in anything. Yeah. Um, it, it, that's true. You had coffee and brunch and paper in bed. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> You're a liar. Um, but also I get it. Like you were also, you know, friends thinking new to it. So anyway. Mm-hmm. Anyway, is that enough about dating, you guys? Any last words? Or not no. dating? <laughs> no, I have no last words. I have no other words. Uh, all right. On my expertise. Yeah, no. right. Okay. No. So let's talk. So, all right. So the, the, you, 
you are, and this is the the kind of last like the last thing that we wanted to really cover in this conversation. So you've you're on you're on a speaking circuit again, and and your um your cause and is really raising the awareness around uh, the relationship of women with alcohol. I mean, that was what drink was about. Um, you said. Uh, I, which I did not know that there's a documentary based off of uh, drink yeah. called Girls Night Out, which now I'm going to watch uh, tonight. And- how can we watch it, Anne? Um, I'm not sure how you can watch it, and I, I I should have had that information. It's it's been in limited release oh. in Canada. It was on the Canadian RCBC, which is our national broadcaster, and. Um, what's interesting about it, although it's called Girls' Night Out, it's really focused on binge drinking and campus drinking. So I'm going to be crossing the country to campuses from coast to coast to coast in Canada talking about um, binge drinking and really the focusing on the fact that we live in an alcogenic culture and what is risky behavior and what is... Um, the downside of losing consciousness and not only will I be speaking at campuses, but I'm speaking right across the country also on the convergence of um, mental health issues and alcohol and looking at the connection with depression, looking at the connection between those two issues and how alcohol confounds um, diagnosis, dilutes the effectiveness of pharmaceuticals, et cetera, et cetera. So lots to talk about um, the cancer connection, 15% of breast cancer cases being attributable to alcohol. Um, Lots of ways in which I guess I would say that my um, profession, journalism, has focused on the upside of drinking and has not focused enough on the downside of drinking. We've seen a change in that, certainly with articles in the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post recently, um, taking a look at the downside, at addiction, at alcohol-related deaths, etc. But there's so much work to do, so much advocacy work to be done, and I'm such a fan of what is evolving in North America, which is primarily a female-led movement of people in recovery talking about what it means to be in recovery, talking about what it means to be sober, talking about what it means to be aware of the culture that we're swimming in, conscious of the fact that we live in a world that's wallpapered with alcohol ads. And I'm not being a prohibitionist to talk about this, but I am am talking about waking up and smelling the coffee, just Mm -hmm. saying look at the culture that we live in and especially let's look at the fact that it is the one thing going sideways for young women well beyond donald trump but it is the one thing going sideways for young women as they achieve as they go toe-to-toe in the workplace as they outpace men in post-secondary education it is the one thing that is really going wrong and that is binge drinking and the normalization of binge drinking and the messaging around binge drinking and it can be traced back to basically the birth of the Alcapop back in the mid-1990s, when, which is basically a teenage girl's dream. And what did you, you call it? Uh, Alcapop. Alcapop. So Mike's Hard Lemonade. Smirnoff. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, those, those drinks that are, that are basically 
aimed at steering um, our gender into drinking tequila and vodka. And they were a huge success. It was an experiment. It was a huge success. All the Johnny Walker drinkers were dying out and the spirits industry watched beer cleaning their clock and said, how do we catch up? And they looked and they realized a whole gender was not drinking the way the other genders should drink. And bingo, it was a big success. And so, you know, you go on campuses across North America and kids are playing drinking games. He's drinking beer. She's drinking vodka or tequila. She's two thirds his size. She probably didn't eat before she went out because it's a date. And um, she's at a total disadvantage. And we all know that the number one date rape drug is is alcohol. alcohol. So yeah. um, it's a really important story. It's an important thing to talk about. It's an important thing to make people conscious of. It's important to know that the steepest spike in risky drinking and binge drinking is after university is the 25 to 34 year old who's giving birth to 60% of North American babies. So there's a lot to discuss and there's a lot of advocacy work to, to be done. And it's important to talk about it in a way and not be a prohibitionist, but to say, be conscious, you know how to do your downward dog, you know how to live gluten free, you know, tanning beds are bad for you. Count your drinks. Measure your it's great well here's the other part of it is that there are now lululemon branded a beer and there is something called yoga you know beer like drink you there's actually a yoga class where people drink beer there's this mixture it is like the place where we do not go and we don't draw the line right like we 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 don't we we try and anything but the alcohol really truly anything but the alcohol and, you know, it's so interesting because – and this is like – this is the, the part that um, – that um, this is the part to me that's really um, key in this, which is that it's – you know, I was watching and I, I don't know. I, I don't think you and I have talked about this, Anne. Um, I was watching – there was this like random commercial for, um, for plastic surgery on YouTube and this woman it's like on the Dr. Oz show and it was promoting this plastic surgeon and and the woman um, was getting a um, fractal uh, resurfacing and she was a smoker and then she gets up at the end she'd smoked for 30 years and she was no longer a smoker and she gets up the end with her you know shiny new face and tells everyone stands in the audience and says I smoked for 30 years Please, if there's one thing that I can say to you, do not stop smoke or do not start smoking. Don't smoke. And if you're smoking now, quit. And I just it was such a like moment of realizing if I did that at the Dr. Oz show about alcohol, which, by the way, is the third leading killer of um of, of Americans, um, it kills a hundred thousand. The third leading um, uh, uh, why why can't I think of the word? Um, uh, preventable, right? Like uh, it's right. like behind um, obesity and behind uh, cigarette smoking is alcohol. It's and if I were to stand up and talk about this killer of a hundred thousand, this thing that causes cancer, this thing that's rated the most dangerous drug of all the drugs, and said. I drank for 30 years and I had a problem with it, you know, and then I would have to qualify with saying I had a problem with it. If you smoked, it's a problem no matter how much you smoke. But if it's drinking, right. you have to qualify that you had a problem with it. And I said, don't, 
if you're don't start drinking and if you are drinking, stop, everyone would say, well, now wait a minute. You know, Dr. Oz would say it's fine to have your, you know, four ounces that nobody really fucking drinks. And so I it's this thing and I'm not a prohibitionist. I'm actually I believe in legalization and decriminalization. Like I am far on the the far end of the spectrum of like, let's let it rip and let's pour our money into things that actually work. Aside from like, you know, throwing people in jail and criminalizing addiction and pain. But like, it's just this thing where we like we are the only like those of us that are in recovery are told, well, you're abnormal. I just wrote something to Love and Light Press. Okay, Love and Light Press, they were the ones that put those Planned Parenthood bags out that said, um, I went to Planned Parenthood and all I got was this, blah, blah, blah. They, I bought one of those bags, two of those bags, and they, you know, and then I, and then they send me a coupon and I go and I look at all of their merchandise. Their merchandise is all out. It's a lot of like alcohol promotion. And I was just like, <laughs> this doesn't sit well for me. You can't like be in this place of saying, like, we are, you know, like in this feminist place of believing that you're doing, like, doing this good for the world and then go and throw the shit in our face that every other marketer is throwing in our face that tells us that we need to drink in order to be okay. And so, but it's this, we are this class of people that know firsthand how awful it is and what it does to us and how hard it is to pull ourselves back from that. And yet we're the ones that are told, you know, for the most part, if we're in recovery, we do not feel like we're that woman that stops smoking and can go out and say, don't smoke. We are like, go over into that corner over there. Be silent. Shut the fuck up. You you can't handle it. Do not ruin it for the rest of us that are normal yep. drinkers. And that's what Love and Light Press said back to me. Now, I can handle my alcohol. So I don't think that there's anything wrong with like with drinking. Like I can have a couple of and I just was like, it's just like replace it with cocaine. Are you fucking serious? You're wearing your Selling propaganda that says to go out and do drugs and you're selling it to the population that's most affected by it um anyway standing off spo- uh, soapbox but it's this like we are the only people that can really speak out and really have an impassioned uh have a truly impassioned stance on it and a first-hand account of it and also we're the ones that are like oh wait no you just are saying that because because you uh because you lost your drinking privilege because you yeah, it's it, I have to read this because as you are saying this super important and true thing, I get this text from my one of my friends and she has been exploring her relationship with alcohol. She she wouldn't qualify herself as having a problem per se, but um by society standards, but it bothers her, right? Her like drinking really bothers her. And so she started to tell her friends like, look, I'm not drinking at this thing that we're going to do or that thing we're going to do. And, and, um, it's specifically, she's telling her friends that she isn't going to drink tonight. Um, they have this like afternoon club that they get together with, with the girls. And this is what her friend writes her in response. This is an email, um, chain that she screenshot and sent to me. She said, I volunteer to drink. I'll call her Leslie. I volunteer to drink Leslie's share of wine because friends look after friends until she returns to sanity and picks up her wine glass again. Someone around here has to imbibe. Leslie, I just said to your husband today that I've had enough of this no drinking business. You're screwing up my Friday afternoon club opportunities. Luckily, I still love you. Wow. Yeah. 
Right. Oh, it hurt. It just like and and also, I mean, but like that was me. I was Leslie. Oh, no. So was I. So (laughs) so was I. I mean, I was I was the friend who was talking to her. Whatever. Yeah, I was Uh, the one that was like, fuck you. No, me too. (laughs) But um, but now seeing this and and she's like, oh, what do I say? You know, and and but that's the culmination of everything you just talked about. That's the the day-to-day, you know, life response yeah. interaction that someone who is looking at speaking up about their truth has to go through. That's right. Every, I mean, hardly anybody do I, that I know makes this decision and, and has a frictionless experience, like, you know, where people rush to support them. And it's, it's not heard of because it's, going against what we've been told we should do. And so anyway, I don't know if we're off track or on point. Anne? (laughs) Well, I just, you know, am appalled that Urban Outfitters has been selling this wine glass that holds a whole bottle of wine that you can't go to the, you know, store to buy a birthday card for a friend and not find, you know, it must be wine o'clock somewhere. It's not funny. It's not funny. That wine glass is not funny. I, I, I and yet I agree with you, Holly. I agree with you, Laura. I mean, the notion is get back in the church basement and quit spoil, spoiling my fun. Yeah, I know. Um, and you know, we we really live in that culture. We live in that culture that is alcogenic, does not want to hear the message, and that's why my argument is really about having an adult conversation. It's not prohibition. It's just saying. Would you please understand it's a drug? Would you please understand that it needs to be consumed in a different way? Yeah. And and we live in a culture that has normalized really risky drinking and basically punishes the rare individual that has trouble with it. If you can't control your drinking, well, that's your problem. Um, And people will will quarrel with me and say, it's been nine years. You can probably drink by now. Right. Yeah, gotten that. <laughs> know yeah. a lot of people that have tried that. We, we, yeah, no, <laughs> no people have tried to die. Yeah, so yeah, so it's not funny. It's not funny, and it really is not necessary in life in terms of having a good time. So yeah. it's it's a conundrum. It's the culture has really absorbed the message that wine equals fun, and it's. Um, it's tedious. I, I just find it tedious to you know, go to California to visit my son and go into the, the liquor store to pick up something and see little high heels that are filled with booze and little handbags mm-hmm. that are filled with booze and little handbags that you can carry your wine to a party in. And I just think the pinking of the market is fascinating. It's, it's endlessly interesting to me to see what the alcohol industry has done to make sure that they get the other half of, of the population. And, you know, you've got women presenting certainly in Canada, definitely in the UK at an extraordinary rate in their twenties with liver cirrhosis, which used to be an old man's Mm -hmm. disease. I mean, the number, if you, if you look as an epidemiologist at what's happening, it is, it is a really scary public health story. 
Well, and this is the, here's the bright spot of all this. So like there is, you know, right now there's, there's this like, um, you know, this rising consciousness is, you know, Trump really, you know, the last year there's been this, I think, catalyzed, um, uh, uh, awareness, more women are waking up, uh, more men and women, but more uh, to the state of the world, to what's going on around them. Um, and so there is, you know, for, 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 for this, for this part of it, right, you know, there's a lot of, I think, like, our people, our listeners uh, are really aware of it. Like, sober people are woke people for the most part because uh, you can't help but be and um, are really sensitive to the things that are going on in this world and also feel this pull to do something, um, you know, to be an activist or to, you know, to really stand and um, and fight for change. And it's I think it's one of the most interesting things like um, I what from my perspective and what I see, I am very shocked when I read conversations like what you just read, Laura. Um, I don't go to places where there's uh, a uh, where there's a, a um, an ambivalent attitude or a um, or a, a you know uh, alcohol fixes everything attitude. It's a very surprising thing when it happens. Um, in my world, what I see is more and more people standing up and speaking their story and saying, "I'm choosing not to drink because that's what my feet is. That's what my what I've surrounded myself with." Which is right. That's this, where you're like, this over the course of many years. You now you're now you're your world is different. Your perception is totally different. Well, not, I'm not talking about my perception. What I'm talking about is that what I see is this is the, the flip side of, of what is out there. What I see is more and more and more and more and more of us willing to share our stories and talk about our relationship with it and, and not hide in the corner and not go into the basement. And, and also they, they don't, they're not just saying I'm this alcoholic, sorry, sorry, guys, can't do this. They're saying, I decided not to drink. I, do, I haven't drank in this amount of time. Here's why I didn't drink. This is what it did to me. This is, you know, mm-hmm. and I and I don't identify as this or I, or I identify as that. But it was, you know, and, and their range, like we just had this talk with Aiden, you know, Aiden, Aiden was yeah. not the stereo, is not the stereotypical, like I lost everything. You know, she just did not like how alcohol was fitting into her life. It wasn't comfortable. And so, um, there is so what I'm saying is we have this awful thing, right? This perpetuation of, of the normalization of drinking. But what we also have is this, this fledgling and burdening, uh, burdening, um, what's the word? Burgeoning. Burgeoning. Um, uh, uh, rising of women that don't drink and are choosing not to drink. And then on top of that, um, are understanding the tie-ins between this and the work we have to do in the world, because we can't go out there and do all these things that we're supposed to be doing. Right. And like fa- fight the patriarchy and claim our, you know, and, and claim our women's rights and, um, and really be able to bring, like, we cannot bring our full selves to the table if we're numbing ourselves out. Right. Like there is not like you there is no way that we can continue on in the way we are like with our, you know, with wine uh, as a crutch um, and do the things that we need to do in this world. Like sobriety is being is fully awake and fully dedicated to the life that's in front of you. Um, And so I do believe that there is like I it's, you know, maybe not in my lifetime, but I do see it shifting and it's shifting like all things do from, you know, like the marketers are coming, you know, it's that's pushing down on us, but the change is coming from the ground up, right? Like the it's 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 
blossoming. And I see a big change from where it was a couple of years ago. I don't know if you guys see it, but I do. I see way more women out there and who are willing to say, we shouldn't be drinking. I think there's a real convergence of voices and a convergence on the issue of consciousness, consciousness in its fullest sense of the word, world, word. So I agree with you on that. And, you know, as a person who was, as they call it, a high bottom, I did not look, crack up a car. I did not lose my home. I had I was vice president of McGill University. I was, you know, in a very I blew the whistle on myself fast. Um, I think that there are. It's so heartening to see the group of women emerging and showing leadership and telling their stories. And what we've seen, certainly in this calendar year, the intersection of many people, many, I would call them right-minded people, fighting for the right things. I think we, I agree with you, Holly. I think we're going to see, we're seeing a movement emerging. Yeah. And we're. And we're part of it, which is to be conscious. That's right. And, and, and brave in speaking our truth about it. You know, I am not, I am not quiet about saying, I don't think we should drink. I am not quiet. Like a couple of weeks ago, a friend said something about how parents shouldn't be smoking pot in front of their kids. And I was like, what about drinking in front of our kids? Right. Which isn't, doesn't make me entirely popular. And I posted about it. Right. And I lost whatever, you know, people on social media. So fucking what? Like, it is important that we say the things that are really hard to say. And this is like, that's a very unpopular thing because it then requires people to look at their own behavior and be accountable to their own lives and to ask, like not, and to ask the question, right? To not necessarily answer the question in the way I want them to answer it, but to at least be able to ask the question of themselves, right? Like, is this the same is this different? Is it a drug? Is it not? Should I be? Shouldn't I be? What? I, I gave a speech last in the last couple of weeks to a group of very concerned parents all at a girls' school, all of whom had young daughters going off to college. And, you know, the evidence shows that the biggest, the biggest influencer on how those young women will drink is how they've watched their parents drink. And when I told them that, you could hear a pin drop because... <laughs> basically threw the responsibility back onto their shoulders. They couldn't sit there as the worried parents, oh my God, that university is going to corrupt my daughter. It really was about what kind of behavior have I been modeling. That's right. And, and there's a lot of evidence certainly coming out of the University of Pennsylvania, amongst others, that really draws the connection between how adults are drinking and how young people watch. And The evidence says even a six-year-old is aware enough to mimic behavior. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's an interesting um, societal dialogue we're not having. That's that's my point. Let's you know, I love talking at campuses, but it goes way beyond campuses. Oh my god! Well, it starts with I mean, it starts with those that are raising the people that end up at the campuses. Um, I was watching um, Real Housewives Beverly Hills last night. And Dorit and her husband were taking a bottle of wine and two glasses and their son, who's two, points to it and says like some like makes some motion towards it. And they like kiss him and they're like, oh, you do take after your mommy and daddy. And like we and I watch that. I watch that and I'm horrified, you know, 
horrified. And yet, like, that is, it's the very, like, simple, innocuous thing to most people. And it's cute. You know, I've had friends who, you know, like, their kids know that, you know, their mom's juice is mommy juice and that mommy loves wine and all of this stuff. And we think it's really cute. And it's, it's you know, and, and then when you step back from it and you get on the other side of it, you're like, your ki- your kids are you're making jokes about your kids' observation of you doing drugs, um, you know. It's anyway. So does that? Are we good on that conversation? <laughs> good on that conversation. We all we all know where we stand. I know we it's do. true. It's true, and I'm really proud to stand on that ground. And it's like it's so funny because I think there was a, a period of time. There, I don't think I know there was a period of time where. I was like, I can't say this stuff because I lost, you know, like I don't do I I don't have a right to say it. It's, you know, it'll be like completely projected as like, oh, it's because you can't anymore. And just fuck that. It's not even about that. Um, I'm really proud to to stand. I know you guys are, too. Um, Is there anything else we wanted to talk about? <laughs> I feel we could go on all day. It's um could yeah we could we'll do another one of course your lifetime um lifetime member (laughs) we're gonna uh we're gonna meet face to face finally in may in new york which is gonna be awesome at cedar covers yeah i really look forward to that i really look forward to meeting this broad group of women all with the same intention in life i know Mm -hmm. it's a powerful Mm -hmm. powerful powerful group of women i'm yeah I'm excited. Yeah, me too. So I think the biggest question, which we won't solve on this, on this conversation is, you know, what comes next? What, what is our mission um, in terms of how could we make it shake, rattle and roll in the next five years? I think that's the, the, that's the big question. Do you have any answers? Um, be loud. We need to be loud. Um, we need to stop speaking just to ourselves, um, and ensure that the broader community is hearing what we're saying. It's one thing to pat ourselves on the back. And I am excited about she recovers, but I think there'll be a lot of that. I think we need to bust out of our group and, um, make sure that, you know, in, certainly in Canada, we've seen some real inroads being made in terms of destigmatizing mental health issues. But I, I really it was interesting when I did my large series for the biggest newspaper in, in Canada on women and alcohol. I said to each and every woman, would you rather be known as an alcoholic or a depressive? And they all said, oh, a depressive. Right. No mm-hmm. to be known as an alcoholic. And so I think there's a lot of destigmatizing um, even around the conversation, as Holly and Laura have been, you both have pointed out in the last um, 20 minutes, I think we need to get louder. I and agree. We, yeah, and I totally agree. Own, own it. And I often stand there and say, this is what an alcoholic looks like. Yes, I was vice principal in McGill University. Yes, I was an award-winning writer. Yes, my book's a bestseller. This is who I am. This I am owning this as well. And I think um, certainly Faces and Voices Recovery has been doing that for a long time, but we need to make sure that our voices are added to that group and how we 
make sure that happens all across the United States and the rest of North America um, is something that we need to keep talking about. Agreed. Agreed. I totally agree. It's Shall we wrap? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have to pee mostly. Okay. Um, terribly. And could need more coffee. <laughs> I love you guys. I love I you love- guys too. Thank you, Anne. Thank you for doing this. And I can't wait to have you on again. Um, I, I loved it. I love talking to you too. I know. Me too. Me too. Love you too. Okay. I have to tell you guys about my astro mapping session. Oh, yeah, we both have all to do. All right. I love you guys. Love you. Bye. 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 Infinitely so. You have been told these things before.